right, today we've got Andy Garrison, the person behind the Actor Training Studio, and we're going to talk to him a little bit today about dialects and accents as well as his studio. Uh, so welcome, Andy. Hello. So um, let's start off right off the bat. The first half, a little bit about uh, dialects and accents, where this uh, came from. I was listening to an interview with uh, an actor who uh, was talking about how various accents differ, and they proceeded to do a few of them, and I thought that was a perfect opportunity for an audio podcast to talk about accents and dialects, how they change, how they work on both the theater and on the film, and just kind of go from there. So, Andy, you're a dialect and accent teacher. My husband recommended that you'd be the one to do it because you apparently helped him do an Australian back when he was working at the zoo for as an interactor. So well the first thing I'd want to say is that accents, uh, dialects are uh, for the actor, they are a condition, right? And so you don't want to make the scene or make the play about the dialect. You don't want to make the scene about your accent. Right, so you st- the accent is something that the character has within them that they do without trying. It's like someone that has a limp, you know, they limp. If you make the scene about a limp, we lose the story. So to go back to dialect, since you know that's what we're here to talk about, what I would say is that the first thing that the actor has to do is listen carefully. I think that the art of impressions and mimicry are overlooked. And for actors that are working on a new dialect, one of the best things they can do is, number one, hear it and mimic it, you know? Even if it's learning a a British accent by doing Monty Python, you know, things. Or learning how to do that Scottish accent from the guy on Saturday Night Live saying, if it's not Scottish, it's crap! You know, that guy. (laughs) You know, when you do that, what's important then is to pay attention to how it feels in your own instrument. Where is the dialect resonating from? As a for instance, when we go into a British dialect, almost regardless of what part of the you know, uh, United Kingdom, well, no, I won't say that because there's other parts, but uh, no matter what part of Britain we're from, you can tap your front teeth with your, with your fingernail, and that will give you the placement that you're looking for. So when you do that, basically, here in Kansas City, we're moving our vocal placement our resonating spot from the middle of our mouth to the front teeth. And the Irish do the same thing, only they do it with a bit of a smile. So you're, you know, in the middle of the mouth is where we are in Kansas City. Now, you're going to hear a lot of dialects in Kansas City. And by the way, a lot of the people that speak Kansas City ease don't uh, refer to our fair city as Kansas City. They call it Kansas City, right? It's true. I used to live in Independence. <laughs> Once upon a time, that's, you know, I won't say Don't forget Washington. That. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have, I have a theory about Washington and to wash our clothes. And I cannot back this up in any way, shape, or form. But I think that, you know, we're taught about George Washington from a very early age. And so a lot of times what happens when people say sounds or speak sounds that are close to each other, 
they substitute them one for the other. So we say George Washington because we can't make the, we can't turn that corner from George to wash, right? And that turned into eventually washing our clothes, you know? It's my own theory. I'm sticking to it. And no matter what anybody says. But to go back, we need to get to the vocal placement. You know, where does that come from? You hear some people talk, way back in their throat. And if they wanted to, they could be down in Texas and doing that. That'd work real good, right? Or they could go up to the northeast, you know, and have that down east to dialect and, you know, don't ask what's your country and all that. So one thing I will say is when I taught your husband the Australian dialect, he may have experienced Australian because he did it six or eight hours a day for an entire summer. He may have experienced Australian basically invading all the other dialect work he did for a couple of years. It happened to me when I was being an Aussie out at the zoo. I mean, I'd, I'd start to do a southern dialect, and suddenly it'd get the south would become invaded by the Aussies, you know? And, <laughs> you know, you had these troops of guys with their, you know, flipped-up hats on one side, you know, marching through the south. And believe me, they didn't care for that. But I worked with a guy who was also doing an Australian dialect out there. This was in the early 90s, you know, ancient history. And what happened was I was doing the Australian thing the whole summer. Well, Dale, my friend, was doing the Australian thing. He was African-American, so he was doing the Zimbabwean thing. He was also doing the Shakespeare Festival, and they had, they had him doing a Caribbean dialect out there. And as well as another one somewhere. I forget what the fourth one was. But he was doing three or four dialects that summer. And what worked for him was that uh, he was able to keep them all distinct. And I think that has a lot to do with him staying flexible and not just wearing the physiology out on one dialect. Mm -hmm. So you get to where the placement is. And in order to do that, you really have to listen to someone speak that's a native speaker uh, or a really good dialectician. And once you do that, then you start to notice what the different vowel substitutions are. You know, when we say after here in the middle American United States, the British might say after, right? So they're dropping that R, and we all recognize that, the dropped R's. What we don't always recognize is they'll say idea. You know, they'll add that R to the end of it of a word that has an A. But with the A, the British have a lot more variety in their A's than we here in the middle American United States do. And, I mean, they have this middle A. We called it um, the ask vowel. You know, I need to ask you, right? It's not ask, and it's not ask. It's ask. You know, it's somewhere in between that's, a, that's pretty subtle to our ears. So... I learned a lot of this in grad school in my voice development class. I had a wonderful, wonderful voice uh, teacher in grad school named Eva Vielgott. She's in San Diego now at uh, one of those state universities there. I can never remember if it's the univers- you know, San Diego State University or the University of California, San Diego. But she's there, still working professionally, and she took us through this entire process of of learning dialects that always started with where the placement is and then figuring out where the the vowel and perhaps consonant substitutions were and then eventually going to what the music of the dialect had in mind. 
I notice on the David Allen Stern instructional series that he does a lot with the sentence shapes. I, I also, I don't only teach accents, but I teach um, what's known as accent reduction to people that come from a, another country perhaps and want to so-called, you know, um, supposedly lose the dialect they have or the accent they have. And what they're actually having to do is just learn a new dialect, Middle American. So, yeah, I, I tend to teach uh, dialect work individually. I don't have a class in it. If somebody wants to bring a dialect into a scene in, in a class at the studio, that's fine. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time in a classroom setting working on a dialect you know, for a scene. Uh, once in a while, I'd go off. But most of the time, it's individual. And kind of going off that, we, we talked a little bit prior to actually turning the mics on. What are some great accents that an actor should put in their back pocket? Well, I mean, you know, around here, we're going to start with probably a standard British dialect or what's, what's known in more academic circles as a received pronunciation uh, dialect. It's kind of interesting because what we think of as the English dialect really only developed a couple of hundred years ago in the uh, public school system in England, and it was really started by a bunch of young guys, <laughs> a couple of hundred, and I think, I just find that fascinating. So you want to have a good received pronunciation or standard British, you know, and that's to be distinguished primarily by education and economic status uh, from the Cockney dialect and the upper crust dialect that uh, the royalty uses. And, and my catchphrase for that one is, you know, being the queen in a parade, you know, calling hello and waving backwards. And so we do the, the standard British, maybe do some um, derivations off of that, uh, certainly southern. And i got to say, one of the things that, that drives me nuts when I go see a show and we're doing a southern dialect is how often... People think that a southern there's only one southern dialect, and that that southern dialect drops its R's. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's fairly uh, specific to South Carolina, Georgia, some parts of Georgia, and again, it's a class thing, it's a social status thing. That uh, sure, the the southern gentility dropped their R's. But most of the Southerners have nice hard R's like anybody, you know, like anybody, you know, if you listen to somebody from Alabama, I had a student from Alabama and I just loved to listen to her talk. Sadly, she passed away a few years ago, but she, she'd talk like this and, and all right, Andy, uh, so you're going to teach me how to act, right? <laughs> and I just love to listen to that lady talk. You know, and she had these nice hard R's and this deep resonant voice that just kicked your tail every time she talked to you. So rarely, actually, does a southern dialect have a soft R. Mm-hmm. If you're talking Charleston, if you're talking Savannah, uh, some parts of Virginia, and there's a lovely, lovely dialect that comes out of Virginia where their O's sound like this, and they're talking to you, and, they, and it's just almost, almost a British O like that and it just makes your ears melt otherwise you're going to a nice hard r until you get down to texas and then get thing going back there in their throat with the nice hard r too well and one of the things that i wanted to talk about was 
when is it appropriate to do an accent? Just because you're doing a show, an Agatha Christie show, doesn't mean all your people have to have British accents, per se. Mm. You know, just because you're doing Crimes of the Heart, you don't have to have everybody in Southern accents. Mm. There's a sense of suspension of disbelief. Because I went and saw a production of Crimes of the Heart in L.A. Mm -hmm. where all three of the girls had three separate Southern accents. And that Mm -hmm. pulled half the people I was with Mm -hmm. completely out Mm -hmm. of it because... Mm -hmm. You know, it was jarring to them to hear those three different accents. Well, I think you do need, for Crimes of the Heart, I think you do need a southern accent. But it it does need to, you're right, it does need to stay uh, specific and consistent, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, we got to believe that those girls grew up in the same oversized house that they grew up in, right? And I I also think if you're doing an Agatha Christie um, mystery, you better do a British dialect because there's a lot of music to that language that just ain't going to sound right. <laughs> Here in the United States, we're talking like that, right? You, you know, there's a, there's a lot of the way the Brits express themselves and the various things they say and the way they say them that is in that sort of play. Now, if you're doing Chekhov, it makes absolutely no sense to me to, to have Russian dialects. Because those people are all talking the same language, and they all get each other the same way. You might have someone that is more urbane and someone that's from the country, and so you might put different dialects on them, but they're probably going to be American you know, American regionalisms. You so know. maybe if it goes back to what the play is about itself. Absolutely. If, if the play where the dialect is important to it, then yes, do it. But at the same time, you know, but if the play is not vital, you know, yeah. just because you're doing the Scottish play doesn't necessarily mean you have to have everybody in Scottish accents. Oh, please don't. I mean, (laughs) you've got... I mean, although it is fun... We won't quote the Scottish play, (laughs) will we? We better not. But it is fun to hear that that dialect at times in there. But no, you're right. I don't think it's important in the Shakespeare stuff. I mean, and... Speaking of that, we don't need to do Shakespeare with English accents, really, do we? So much? We don't. And there's a really interesting thing that came out on NPR just a few days ago where there's yet another guy that is producing um, recordings of people speaking Shakespeare as it was probably heard in Shakespeare's time. I want to say it was USC did a production. I think you're right. Oh, in the quote-unquote original dialect. And he said, I just remember me saying, it's been a pleasure, you know, <laughs> as opposed to pleasure, you know. That I so <laughs> the, the guy, what's his name, John Barton, that put out those doing Shakespeare, acting Shakespeare videos several years ago. Gosh, it's been 20, 25 years ago. You know, he was so into doing the sort of mixture of Warwick accent with uh, some kind of American, you know, spice thrown in. And it's possible that what they were saying in Shakespeare's time sounded more American than standard British. Go figure. That's really interesting. Kind of going off your other job, too, you are a teacher Mm -hmm. and a coach. Mm -hmm. How much, and this is a question just because I think we all agree that bad accents, (laughs) as you mentioned, for Crimes of the Heart, can kill you as an audience member. For a student that walks in, how much is natural talent and how much is teachable for, for when it comes to accents? Because I think there's a perception that, well, I don't do accents, so therefore I, I, I can't you do know, that show. I have had people come in and take a few classes that do these great dialects. 
and they have a natural ear and a natural talent for those dialects and they can do other impressions you know they can do you know Rush Limbaugh and other people but a lot of the time that's what acting is for them it's about doing funny voices you know okay but when you can get that person to then deepen their craft into, you know, I'm going to dig into this script and I'm going to figure out what this relationship is and and what that makes me feel like and what what's just happened that's causing this conversation to happen and this action to take place. And, and, and now what my objective is, what do I need that person to do and what am I doing to them? You know, I'm nudging her to <laughs> get her to do something. All of that basic actor craft work that we have to do you know really the dialect is something that is added on top of that we we so have to go to that so sure there's a natural talent for dialect work but I'll tell you something it's all learnable it's a skill it's an acquired skill you know it's like singing <laughs> it's it's hearing music and you know you have people that cannot carry a pitch to save their life but you work with them, and you work with them, and you work with them, and they start to hear a difference between high and, I mean, high and low, you know? It, sometimes you have to work with people on the most fundamental level for that ear training. But it's, it's almost like the same question asking me, you know, do some people just have it? And do some people just never going to get it? And I think if somebody wants to do it, there's a habit in there somewhere. There's a talent in there somewhere. We're going to ferret out. And if we can't get it through the front door, we're going to come in through a window. So same thing's true with dialects. Okay. Well, we're almost done, but I wanted to give one more question, talking a little bit more about your studio. Just a brief, what exactly, you know, tell us a little bit about the studio, how it works. Sure, sure. um, And if someone wanted to go for more information, where they would uh, contact you. You bet. The best place to contact me is online at uh, actortrainingstudio.com. It's not actors training studio, people. It's actor training studio. One actor, one studio, a whole lot of training. And my email is andy at actortrainingstudio.com. Go figure. And this will uh, all be linked in the show notes as well. So. Oh, good. Let's see. The studio is close to 95th and Knoll. And basically the way things work is all of my classes are for adults. They are ongoing. Actors pay for class four weeks at a time. It's about $175 for every four weeks. Currently, there are you know rewards for in referring people, and I have uh, long-term discounts. And basically, what we do is we take an actor in, and we work on getting their acting to be as personal to them as possible. And uh, once they get it to be personal, the job is to get it more personal. So that's kind of what we're about there at the Actor Training Studio. I have a great time. Anything on your end, Jen? No, you pretty much covered a lot more than I anticipated. So thank you for sharing everything. For I can dialects. talk a lot. Yes, that's, that's a, all right. That's awesome. We love people who can talk a lot. Okay, we're going to take a short break, um, and then we'll come right back, and then we'll wrap things up. We'll be right back. Uh, this is Art Suscombe, the artistic director of the Theater Gym. Please go to our website, www.theatergym.com.org. Spell theater any way you want. There's all kinds of stuff there. And you are listening to Stage Savvy. Hey, 
Thank you for listening to episode 14 of Stage Savvy, hosted by Jen Morris and Angie Peterson. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'd love to hear your feedback. You can send us comments in several ways. You can comment on the blog post of this podcast over at angiefsutton.wordpress.com, where you will also find show notes where you can meet Andy Garrison and all his contact information. Uh, you can also... Email us at afiegel, that's A-F is in food, I-E-D is in dog, L-E-R, at kcstage.com, or if you'd like your comment to be on the actual podcast, you can leave us a voicemail at 8163 stage, please indicate your comment on the podcast, and this is a regular form of the KC Stage magazine. We'd like to thank KKFI-FM 90.1 for letting us record the podcast in our lovely studios, as well as Jason Bauer, who wrote the great theme music variation by Gabriel. Great bumper, and of course, a special thanks to Andy Garrison for talking with us today. Since this is an audio podcast, we like to end each with a song usually written and or performed by a local musician. If you're a musician would like to highlight something you've written, just send us a note, again, either by email, afeeler at kcstage.com, or by calling 816-23-STAGE and mentioning the podcast. This month is a song by a Christian rock band, Glory Road, led by Jeff Potts. The band uses songs to prepare personal testimony. The show notes will link to their website and their Facebook page. Here is Rubber Meets the Road by Glory Road. Yeah, my feet at the floor this morning And things just didn't seem right Discouragement and confusion were blocking me from the light. I could not let that happen, for I'm gonna reap just what I sow. So a day will be a true test of how the rubber meets the road. Well, my body it aches from hard days. This world has let me down Pressure and fear sought me And they continue to come around But prayer is truly my answer For on my knees I will grow And as for me and my house We're gonna let the rubber loves me, I know, so I will walk hand in hand with you, my Lord, and let the rubber beat the road, rubber beats the road. I worship God and I pray I 
lift my hands in honor to overcome the troubles of this day. Once again, he has brought me. Yes, Jesus loves me, I know. It has been a true test of how the rubber meets the road. Ahead of me in the distance, Lord, I see that narrow gate. And no weapon that is formed against me is ever going to stand in my way. Cause my eyes are on the vision of how Jesus loves me, I know. Stage Savage was released under a Creative Commons Attribution, not commercial share alike license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org.